message, I want to tell you about some neighbors of ours uh, right here in Manatee County. Uh, specifically, I want to tell you about Redemption Church Manatee. Uh, their pastor, Paul Helton, uh, is a, a friend of mine. That There's a, there's a group of us uh, here in the Bradenton area that we get together once a month, a group of pastors uh, across denominational lines, and uh, we get together just to, just to share stories and encourage one another and pray together. That's the reason, real reason we get to, together, so we can just spend some time praying. And Paul uh, got involved in our prayer group uh, several months after he got kicked off. And, uh, and Paul is a guy that has uh, been a member at First Baptist Church of Sarasota for a number of years. That's his kind of what he considers to be his home church. And he and his wife and their, uh, their four kids, one of their kids is adopted from overseas, uh, they felt the call to plant a new church and to do it here in, in Manatee County. And so for the last number of months, they've been operating as a, a Bible study in their home, and they have outgrown their house. And so today, right now, while we're worshiping here, uh, Redemption Church Manatee is, uh, is having their first uh, public worship service at one of the local middle schools. And uh, Paul is a guy who has been through uh, all of the assessment process of our North American mission board with our Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, he's planting a church as a part of our Manatee Southern Baptist Association. And so uh, Redemption Church Manatee is getting what we call a soft launch today. They haven't gone public with a lot of information. Uh, it's a, a group of about 35 people. And so I, I told Paul that I wanted us uh, that when we got together today while they're having their first uh, worship service outside of somebody's house that we would take a few moments to pray for them. And so let's just uh, take a second and lean in and just pray for this new church that's getting birthed in our community. Father, we, uh, we trust you that the good news that we have found in Jesus is the thing which has changed our lives, and we want more people to know about the gospel. And so today, as Paul and uh, his wife and their kids and this, uh, this happy group of believers are birthing a new church in our community, Lord, we ask that you would give them every uh, entryway necessary to reach other people in our community that have not yet been reached by a church. Lord, that you would encourage them, that you would make them great ambassadors for the kingdom of God. Lord, that, that you would uh, cause their joy and excitement about planting the gospel in, in, in this community to be contagious. Lord, that, that we would celebrate along the way every time they see a new life be birthed by Christ. Lord, every time they see a, a broken life be mended by His grace. Lord, we're just thankful that you are continuously working in a multitude of ways in our community, in all sorts of churches that are teaching your word and talking about Jesus and lifting up his name. And so, uh, Jesus, I just pray that you would uh, encourage this church planter along the journey that sometimes is, is tough and, and, and could be filled with disappointments, that instead you will just keep his eyes fixed on your glory and on your goodness, and that you would empower this congregation uh, to be dynamic witnesses of the gospel, that you would give them a multitude of ways to minister to hurting people so that they can meet needs in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you 
for faithful men and women who strike out into your mission. Uh, Lord, help us always uh, to encourage them and to be counted among them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let me in, in, encourage you, if, uh, if you're on uh, Facebook, you can uh, look up Redemption Church Manatee and you can get updates on what's going on with Paul and his merry band of believers, or you can uh, look up their website. I encourage you to send kind of any kind of encouraging notes you can to those, uh, to those folks. Well, today, we're going to continue this uh, series of messages through the Gospel of John. Uh, we're still in chapter 1, and so if you've you got a Bible with you or you want to grab the one that's there in front of you, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, uh, chapter 1, and I want to take a moment to talk about God in the flesh. Uh, the arrival of Jesus is the most significant moment in human history, and it is the most significant moment in all of eternity. Because it's through the life of Jesus, it is through what is known as the incarnation. That's the, the technical theological term for when, when God takes on flesh in the form that the Son of God comes to earth. In the incarnation, we get a revelation of God that gives us new life, it gives us a new family, it gives us new insights into God's glory and into His grace and into His truth. And so here in John chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10 and read down through verse 18. It says about Jesus, which it is referring to Jesus in this passage as the Word. So it says, He was in the world, and the world was created through Him, and yet the world did not recognize Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of of grace and truth. John, now this is referring to John the Baptist, John testified concerning him and exclaimed, this was the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is Himself God, and as at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. This passage uh, is packed with ideas about what it looks like to better understand the incarnation uh, of God of what it means that God shows up here in the flesh. This is inherent, it is part and parcel, it is at the very core and at the very essence of Christianity. It, this is what we believe, is that God did not stay removed, that God did not stay in heaven at, at arm's length, that He has not stiff-armed us, that He has not left us to our own devices and somehow hope that we would figure out religious ideas and spiritual concepts on our own so that we could get to Him. But instead, God in His infinite mercy 
has decided in eternity past that when humanity messed up the world and messed up ourselves and and broken our relationship with him, he decided that he would actually come to earth. And so I want to give you five statements about this particular passage that I hope will unpack the truths that are here today. The first statement is this, the incarnation is a revelation of God through Jesus. Now, don't take the word revelation lightly. I don't mean that you lost your keys on Saturday afternoon, and then somewhere after you had the right amount of tacos for dinner, you had a revelation that you remembered where they were. When we think about the idea of the revelation of God, we're thinking of the highest idea that could possibly enter the human mind, God. Uh, He is eternal in His expanse. He is infinite in His power. He is overwhelming in His grace and love. And He has decided to reveal Himself, to pull back the veil so that we could understand who He is. And so Jesus provides for us a a revelation of of God through this incarnation. In verse 14, it says, "...the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." There in verse 18, "...no one has ever seen God." The one and only Son who is Himself God and is at the Father's side, He has revealed Him. This revelation that we get through the incarnation, it is unique. It is unique because He is the one and only Son of God. There, is, there are lots of other people who have made lots of other religious claims about who they are, but there is only one of them who actually got up from the dead. And and so the the revelation that we get through Jesus is unique in that he claims and he backs up the claim with his life, with his ministry, with his miracles, and with his resurrection that he really is God. So it's unique. It is also very personal. It says there in verse 14 that the Word became flesh, and the, and the term flesh there literally means your skin. It, it's not some poetic kind of statement about that, there was an, that God came down as a ghost or an apparition and he kind of experienced life. It means he took on flesh, he was born, and, and, and that he made his dwelling among us. It's personal. And this idea that he made his dwelling among us is the literal term that he actually set up his tent. He pitched his tent. Uh, Eugene Peterson, a famous writer of the Christian faith and the one who authored a particular paraphrase of the Scriptures called The Message. Some of you may have a copy of it. In this particular verse, he paraphrases it by saying, and he moved into our neighborhood. You know, and so for, for Jesus, this is a personal kind of work that he does, that he wants us to to see God. He wants us to to know that there is a revelation of God. And for for the the original audience that is receiving this letter, this gospel of John, they were primarily Hebrews. They were Israelites. And so when John uses this phrase that he pitched a tent, 
For them, what they're going to translate that in their own mind and hearts is that he tabernacled among us. Now, a tabernacle is a noun, and I just made it into a verb, but I'm a writer. I get to do that. Um, And so they would think back to the Old Testament when the Israelites were in the Exodus. Remember, they were all slaves in Egypt, and God provided a deliverance for them out of slavery in Egypt in order to go to the promised land. And while they were in the desert, God wanted them to know His presence, and so He gave them all sorts of specific instructions about how to build this large tent that they called the tabernacle. It became known as the Tent of Meeting, because it was the place where they would go for worship and instruction from the priests, and it's the place where they would go to know God. It's the place where His presence would dwell on the earth. And so, John is using this same kind of impactful language that this is a unique revelation of God. This is a personal revelation of God where God's presence is actually with us, and and I, I also have to think that it's a very sympathetic revelation of God. Because Jesus takes on flesh so that as we learn from the rest of the New Testament, that he would understand what it's like to be a human. That he would be able to say, no, I've been tested by every temptation that is common to man. Jesus being a human, uh, growing up in Nazareth in the home of a carpenter, that he would have learned a trade. He would have had to sweat while he was cutting wood. Uh, He would have gotten thirsty and hungry. He needed to go to sleep at night. He knew what it meant for it to be hot during the summer and cold during the winter. It tells us later in the book of Hebrews that we have this sympathetic high priest who has been tested at every point that is common to man. And so the incarnation is a revelation of God through Jesus that we see that it's unique and it's personal and that it's sympathetic. Now, a second point that I would make out of this passage is that the revelation of Jesus is an invitation into God's family. This is not just for philosophical effect that God does this. This is not just for dramatic effect that God does this. This is not just for some kind of religious effect that He just wants to know. He, he, he just wants you to know that He's bigger and badder than you are. This is the revelation of Jesus is an invitation that He makes to us into God's family. Here in verse 12 of the passage, it says, but to all who did receive Him, He gave them to be the right to be the children of God to those who believe in His name. This is that God is revealing Himself to us so that He can be knowable, so that we will come into not just a religious practice, but that we will come into a personal relationship. That it's not just so that we will have rules and regulations, it's that we will have a covenant that is designed by God, that we can know Him. And, and, and by God being knowable, it means you're in a relationship with Him. Now, sometimes our sinfulness and our broken lives and our guilt, we are the ones that kind of shove God off. Uh, I'm not so sure, God, that you would want me. I, I'm not so sure, God, that I deserve grace and mercy. I'm not so sure that I can come into this relationship. But I I want you to recognize who it is that did all of the work here 
to make the invitation possible, that it's God who gets up off the throne, the Son of God, who is willing to leave the eternal realm where He is being worshipped nonstop throughout all of eternity, where His glory shines unfettered and is completely recognized by the heavenly host, and He is the one who does all of the hard work of taking on flesh and, and living on the earth so that you and I could get this invitation into his family. It, 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 it is pretty astounding that somebody would do that much stuff for us because I and you, we've met us. We've read the headlines about us. We know the wars caused by us. We know the, the vitriol and the bitterness and the anger caused by us. And yet, the revelation of Jesus, nevertheless, is an invitation into his family that if you will believe, you can have the right to be a child of God. Third point that I would make to you today is that the entrance to God's family is through the work of Jesus. This is an exclusive kind of idea. Uh, there, I don't know that you can find entrance into God's family by any other means. It says here in verses 12 and 13, "...but to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God to those who, were, who believe in His name." who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Uh, let me make sure that this is as clear as possible. When he says here in verse 13, he says, those who believe in his name are, can have the right to be the children of God. He is saying, this is not given to people because of any kind of natural descent. There's no lineage that gets you entrance into the family of God. It doesn't matter who your mama was, and I'm sure your mama was great, all right? It, it doesn't matter how saintly your grandmother was. It doesn't matter wh what's in your family tree. It, it's not of natural descent. And this was a, a strong word to people who had a religious heritage. And he says, it's also not of the will of the flesh. That's not how you get entrance into the family of God. It's not by the will of the flesh. It's not by your activity. It's not that your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff. And, and because a lot of times people, when you ask them, how, how are you going to get to heaven? How are you going to make it into God's presence? They say, well, I've been a good person. And, and we are all, we're all fooling ourselves with that answer. I'm going to be a good person. Uh, you're, you might be fooling other people that you're a good person, but somehow you're going to, we're going to stand before the very glorious throne of God and somehow dare to say to Him, yeah, I've been good. Like in the face of God, somehow we're going to declare, yes, I've been good. In the face of, of His eternal perfection and goodness, there is no good in the face of that. And so it's not of the will of the flesh. He says, nor of the will of man. Just generally, you're not going to willpower yourself into it. You're not going to just somehow figure it out on your own. But instead, it is this relationship that Jesus offers of love and provision that you can receive a new birthright, 
Not by your will, not by your willpower, not by anything that is of a heritage nature. But you get entrance to God's family through the work of Jesus it is through His invitation, it is, and that invitation comes through His revelation. Number four, the work of Jesus is the delivery of glory, grace, and truth. This is when Jesus works on the earth, He is uncovering some things about who God is and about who we are, so that things can be made right. It is the delivery of glory, grace, and truth. Again, let me read a couple of these verses. Here in verse 14, he says, We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In, in verse 16, he says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from... His fullness, because the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, these three ideas that if, if, if the incarnation reveals God through Jesus and the revelation of Jesus is an invitation into God's family and the entrance to God's family is through the work of Jesus and the work of Jesus is to deliver glory, grace, and truth, what are these three ideas of glory, grace, and truth? that are in this passage. Well, glory, I would say, is God's beautiful presence made known through His reputation and work among us. Uh, God's glory is not just the twinkly lights of heaven floating around uh, that it's hard to look at. Uh, the glory of God is something that is made manifest and known to us. It is His reputation that precedes Him. It is that we know His character and His nature of being holy, perfect, righteous. It is His beautiful presence that is made known through His reputation and His work among us that He wants us to understand His goodness and His character. Grace is God's blessings that come at no cost to you. It, grace is when you have done nothing to earn a gift, but you get it anyway. Grace is Christmas morning when your kids have acted awfully for all of December. That's grace. It is when you, you do not burn their presence in the fire in front of them, even though they were really bad. Grace is saying, I still want you to have this gift, and it comes at no cost to you. Uh, you can't earn it. You can't work hard for it. I'm just going to give it to you. And then truth, because the work of Jesus delivers glory, grace, and truth. Truth is God's eternal and fixed understanding of all things. I mean, think about that, what this passage is claiming for us, that Jesus comes to us full of grace, all the unmerited favor of God upon your life, and truth, all of the eternal knowledge of God. Now, logically, I think that a regular human being like us, that maybe we could show up with a lot of grace and give out a lot of good blessings, but it almost mitigates for us that we have like no truth, like I don't know anything about anybody. Then it makes it really easy for me just to give all sorts of stuff away. Or I show up with all sorts of truth, 
Like, I understand, and we understand everything that's good and bad and, and indifferent, and we know everything about everybody, and then suddenly I, I might not have a whole lot of grace because I know everything about everybody. And yet Jesus, because of God's glory, because of His good character and His good nature and His kindness, Jesus shows up full of God's glory, carrying both grace, all of His favor that is going to be shown, and all of His truth, knowing the situation from beginning to end, that He still brings both of them to us, that He wants people who are broken to be mended, that He wants people that are sinful to be forgiven, that He wants people that are in the shadows to be brought into the light, that He wants people that are dead spiritually to be brought to life. And so he shows up in the full glory of God, filled with both the truth of the circumstances and the grace to overcome our brokenness. You see, the incarnation reveals God through Jesus, and the revelation of Jesus invites us into God's family, and the entrance into God's family is through the work of Jesus, and the work of Jesus is delivering glory, grace, and truth. But fifthly, all of this has to be received by faith. I mean, I, I, I've t I'm taking you through a logical progression of stuff and things and whatnots, but all of this has to be received by faith. That's even what John, the gospel writer, makes a case here. He says there in verses 10 and 11, talking about Jesus, the Word of God, he says, He was in the world, and the world was created through Him, and yet the world did not recognize Him. He came to His own. And his own people did not receive him. And then verse 12 starts, but to those who did receive him. People are allowed to reject Jesus. You are allowed to. You have the freedom of soul and will to say, no, I do not want Jesus. You also today have the freedom to say, yes, I do want Jesus. And it has to be received by faith. It's not received because you just decide mentally this makes more sense than Islam or Mormonism or atheism or some other ism. But you say, I am going to receive Jesus the revealed God of the universe in human form who dies on a cross and is risen from the dead, I'm going to receive him. That has to be an act of your faith. So, let me give a summary. The incarnation is a revelation of God through Jesus, and this revelation of Jesus is an invitation into God's family, and the entrance into God's family is through the work of Jesus, and the work of Jesus is the delivery of glory, grace, and truth, but all of this has to be received with faith, because the Scripture said that it's not by natural descent, it's not your religious heritage or lineage, and it's not 
by the will of the flesh. It's not by the fact that somehow you can do all the right things, nor is it by the will of man. It's not because you can be mentally acute enough in in order to to figure out a, a pathway to God, but it is through receiving and recognizing and acknowledging the rightful place of Jesus as the Son of God who comes to earth as a man. Without a relationship with Jesus. For Christians, I want to say to you that if you, if you begin to waver in your faith, if you're a Christian here today, lots of you are, we face the temptation of becoming what others have referred to as a functional atheist. I mean, you're a Christian, and you have entrusted your eternal soul to God, but on a day-to-day basis, you really don't live by faith, you really don't operate spiritually, you still are just kind of going through the motions of what everybody else does in the world, and functionally, you operate like God is not there. And so you need to allow this passage to once again like rev up the idea within your soul, within your mind, that Jesus has arrived here in order to invite you into an active, growing, constant relationship of of glory, grace, and truth. And, And for those of you that are here today, this is an invitation for those of you that are not Christians yet into the family of God. This is not an invitation to get your name on a roll of a local congregational organization. It's not an invitation for you to sign up for something new religiously. This is an invitation for you to receive, as this gospel writer says, the right to become a child of God, to get into his family. One of my favorite stories from the Bible is found uh, in the story of King David. Uh, I, uh, I, I, it's one of those stories within the Bible that I could probably be accused of using. Uh, if you can use anything too often, this would be one of those that I would use too often to, uh, to, to teach. But it is one of my favorites. King David was not King David to start with. He was a little shepherd. And the people of Israel wanted a king, and so they cried out to God, and they said, we want to be like all the rest of the nations of the world. We want a king. And God said, I am your king. You don't need a human king. They said, no, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king, a guy who's impressive. And so God says, okay, you think you know what you want? I'm going to let you have what you want. Go find that impressive guy. And they find the impressive guy. His name is Saul, and he was an unmitigated disaster. He was a terrible king. He was selfish, he was self-aggrandizing, he was narcissistic, he was scared, he was just a terrible king. And so God said to the people, all right, what I have in mind is I'm going to give you the right kind of king. And so he, he found a little guy out of a little family named David who was a shepherd, and, and he said, I'm going to anoint this guy to become king. Well, you go through the story, eventually kind of civil war breaks out. Um, and, and after even David had been serving Saul, uh, Saul starts to try to find ways to get David killed. And so David has to hide in the countryside. And, and along the way, uh, of all things that happen, David becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And so David and Jonathan, one day out on the field, they make a promise to each other. 
And they make the promise that if either one of them gets killed in battle, that the one who is left alive, he would take care of the family of the other one. Well, as it so happens, Jonathan dies. He gets killed in all of the civil war that happens. And so Saul dies, and David goes to the throne. And so now David is in charge of the whole country. He, and, and, and this pact that he had made with Jonathan, nobody knew about it. It was a secret covenant. It was a secret friendship bond that they had. So Jonathan is dead. His family is scattered. And David is on the throne. So David calls one of his servants, a guy by the name of Ziba. And he tells him, he says, I want you to go and I want you to search the countryside to see if you can find anybody who is left out of Jonathan's family. And he finds one guy. His name is Mephibosheth. Do not ask me to spell that, okay? Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, when he was a baby, some marauders attacked his home, and his nursemaid scooped him up when he was an infant, and as she was running out of the house when he was a little baby, stumbled and dropped him, and it broke his legs. And so Mephibosheth had grown up to be a, uh, an adult with, as a cripple as a grown man who was a crippled. And in the ancient world, if you were a crippled, it meant that the gods out there in the stars must hate you. You must be cursed. Well, Ziba finds this one guy, and he tells King David. And David says, go and get this one guy and bring him to me. So they go, they find Mephibosheth, they bring him to the palace. They bring him into the king's court. And David says to Mephibosheth, Are you Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan? And Mephibosheth looks to the king, a man with broken legs, crippled, seemingly perceived cursed by culture, and he says to the king, Yes, I am, O king. What would you want with a dead dog like me? And a lot of times we stand before God and we see His power and His ability to judge and His rightful place to decide what's right and wrong. And then we look at ourselves and we think, well, what would, what would you want with just an old dead dog like me. And David says, Mephibosheth, I made a promise of deliverance. And so everything that was ever taken from your family, it will be restored to you. And the one person who has no place to call his home, you now have a bedroom in my palace. And the man's family who was cursed and cast out by all the rest of Israel who has no way to provide for himself, and you, Mephibosheth, will have a seat at the king's table for the rest of your life. And the beautiful thing when you're crippled is that when you sit at the king's table, your brokenness is covered. And I want to tell you today, that the incarnation of Jesus is so that your brokenness could be covered.
so that you could be invited to the king's palace. And you could, like Psalm 23 says, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. God, there are men and